Hi, welcome to Contourcast. My name's Kat Boyd. I'm joined with uh, my lovely co-host, David Jameson. How's it going? How's it going? It's going fine. I've got um, major lockdown fatigue, major coronavirus fatigue. Um, well, we, we were saying, we were saying before we came on here that it's, it's, it's officially sort of my last week. It worked. <laughs> um, Though I, I reckon I'm gonna be, be gonna be keeping going, but I'm trying to get everything done that I've not gotten done up until this point. So I've got a major, like, major work fatigue before I try. I'm trying to sort of purge it all out and I can have a good long holiday break. But inevitably, I'm gonna it's gonna bleed over. Um, yeah, so what I'm, you're going to do is you're going to like do all that work so you get a break, and then you're just going to find yourself still sitting in your house, still looking at a computer, still yeah, on Twitter. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, still having arguments with people. Yeah, because it's it is the season for those arguments because of course Brexit mass Brexmas Brexmas does that Me- I I think people were saying that last year, you know, in one of the many false dawns <laughs> uh, of Brexit, it, Brexmas part two, um, because uh, there is. Well, going to arrive either a deal or no deal, though, as of today, it's looking very much like a deal. Uh, all the signals are coming from Ursula von der Leyen and so on that they're, they're reaching a deal. Though, actually, as I've said throughout, this is the more likely scenario. Not, It's not certain, 100%, never has been, but it's always been the most likely scenario. Um, very interestingly, what I'm hearing uh, on uh, the, the approaches to a Brexit deal is that the, the deal is now back where it was weeks ago mm-hmm. because con- contrary to what you might have had in the kind of liberal press in Britain, it's been the EU commission which has been imposing, introducing new measures, new uh, new clauses, basically, that has yeah. upset the, the British government. Because so, you kind of get this view in Britain uh, that um, it's all about Boris Johnson and what he's doing and, and so on. Actually, for the last couple of weeks, he's been reacting from to, to new offensives, as it were, by the EU Commission. So the deal is now closer to the one that they were close to agreeing weeks ago. Um, but this is just part of, this is how it works. I mean, if anyone remembers the 2015 Grexit threat, it all went right up to the wire to the very last minute. Um, and then right, you know, in the middle of the night when everyone's exhausted, some kind of deal has arrived at. And that's just the way that negotiations with these organisations uh, work. I mean, Brexit. Um, so, Brexit feels like a lifetime ago. Brexit. People, so it's so common now to forget that the word Brexit comes from Brexit. Yeah. I, I've, God, I've completely, like, forgotten about that. I mean, really, but really, though, that is, like, that's the crux of the matter for me around um, leaving the EU is is what happened with Greece. Um, actually, like I got a photograph sent to me um, the other week of me, Jonathan Shafi, and one of our uh, comrades from Greece, Myrtle. Do you remember Myrtle? Mm-hmm. Of course, Myrtle, yeah. if you're listening to the pod, that's a little shout out for you. Um, and it was the night of the the referendum in Greece about um, accepting the new memorandum of understanding, mm-hmm. which basically tied the the bailout to savage further savage cuts to social services and 
and public spending and I mean really quite brutal restructuring packages all of that tidied from the the troika I mean tidied I think is a kind of useful way of thinking of it um and the Greek people voted to reject it like I I remember that night like you know just really (sighs) being so delighted that people had stood up to this um like neoliberal monster the, the the eu has become and um, like it felt like a real rebellion and even though there was all the project fear you know about what would happen if they voted to reject the these terms it was it was an incredible thing and um, obviously after that you know things really really didn't go very well and uh, syriza have been one of the great tragedies i think of the modern left and um, but you're right like I mean, when Yanis Varoufakis now, even like very recently, is talking about the way that the EU deal with those negotiations, um, you can, ex- you, I, I mean, I can imagine like how they are approaching that in a very, very particular way. What I'm finding interesting about Brexit at the moment is a uh, good old Keir Starmer. I mean, he's some man. Like basically, he's. He, he, he said quite openly that if Boris Johnson brings that Brexit deal that they're thinking of at the moment um, to Parliament, then he will whip all his MPs to back Johnson's deal in order to quote unquote win, win back the North of England. Which, um, I mean, he kind of tells on himself here by, by saying this because he was one of the leading voices for the People's Vote campaign which to me just exposes his entire agenda and the People's Vote campaign for what it was, which was to undermine the Corbyn project. It was to undermine the left and the party. And I think that Starmer's really, really exposed himself. And, you know, people who were involved in that People's Vote campaign, some people I'm sure, you know, went into it with good intentions, but the people who were using that to undermine the Corbyn project or who wanted to get back into the EU and back into bed with the neoliberal beast really need to have a long, hard look at themselves. Um, I mean, that, that the Brexit issue, uh, as well as part of the weaponizing of anti-Semitism, the Brexit issue, like, pushed Corbynism onto the back foot, like a real, like, retreat. It was, I think, a complete disaster so I think that Starmer is guilty of like epic opportunism both around the people's vote to undermine um, Corbyn and now to you know quote-unquote win back the north of England by voting for what's going to be a shite deal it's a a complex one because people's vote always had a dual character on the one hand its supporters really were in favour of the European Union for right-wing reasons because they were pro-globalization, they were pro-neoliberal globalization. So people who were organizing people's vote, forget this, it was people like Peter Mandelson. I mean, they were always falling out with each other, but it was, you know, it was the old Blairite crew, it was businessmen and so on. Do you remember that story about Alistair Campbell and the stall table? No. I'm, like, I'm sure I didn't dream this, but you remember there was that big demonstration for the people's vote? There was something about like how Alistair Campbell was trying to make an intervention at that demonstration and he was running around with one of those, you know, those like Trotskyist pasting tables. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. Yeah. <laughs> Down to the that level. Might, that might actually have been a lockdown dream, but of the of the yeah. 
he's uh, he's like a spot, you know, running around yeah. at a demo with a pacing table. Um, but um, so it, you know, it was all those people who who really did like the EU again for right wing reasons, uh, not for left wing reasons. And then uh, the always kind of thing of well, it puts Corbyn in a corner; it can hurt Corbyn. So even if it doesn't win, because there was you know you can never you should never say of history like uh, well that outcome was inevitable or it wasn't or whatever. But it was probably unlikely that people's vote was ever actually going to work. You know, on on any times. I mean, imagine that had actually been that had actually won out as a policy position, then won an election, and we'd had a second referendum on Brexit. Can you imagine how crazy that situation would have been? Um, but yeah, obviously the other register of it, it that it worked on was um, in in undermining uh, Corbynism. What what I, I hope people can see by this point is. The issue over Brexit in the Labour Party was a left-right split. It's that simple. Yes. The left wanted to accept the vote and the right wanted a, a, a people's vote, so-called. Ultra-Remainism is a right-wing uh, form of politics uh, with, you know, under the wider kind of rubric of liberalism or whatever. It's it's part of a right operation. Uh, just, as it, just as it is in Scotland today, it has to be said. Um, and it needs to be understood on those times. If you're if you're uh, uh, in the SNP leadership and you're desperate for Scotland to join uh, the European Union, it's because you're on the right of the independence movement. Uh, people want to treat it as a pure tactical issue or as totally ulterior to other political questions. And it isn't, and it can never be because it is an entirely capitalist organisation. Uh, it is built with specific purposes in mind. It is designed to do specific things, and those are not progressive things. Um, and, and and I think this is this, this is a serious problem, right? The SNP leadership have spent the last uh, three years, or however long it's been, four years almost. They have spent that time arguing that it would be a disaster for a single nation ever to leave a broader union of nations. Uh, and those quotes are going to come back to haunt the independence movement in a big way. It has been a disastrous policy to, instead of to try and take the opportunity of an unprecedented chaos and malaise at the top of British society, instead of taking that opportunity to drive for independence, the leadership of the SNP has spent that time trying to protect the British state by, by opposing Brexit on those terms specifically. You cannot move outside of a transnational bloc disastrous disastrous and typical short-term thinking uh, from the leadership of the SNP who most of the time are only thinking about their class peers they're only thinking about how will this look on the European Commission how will this look to the General Secretary of NATO how will this look you know in Brussels how will this look in Washington um, and 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 look if, if we do get a deal in the next few days and that's what it looks like, um, or if another arrangement is arrived at, which doesn't result in total apocalypse, which is what was predicted, then these people that totally ridiculous. Yeah, I mean the other way that the um, debate around the EU has played out is surprise, surprise, through the culture war. The you know this is a um, progressive um, or re who are remainers and reactionary forces um on the anti-eu side and it's just not as clean cut as that and i think that's been the major frustration with it 
um, the, the whole debate, you know, has played out like that. Um, and we have to actually, in some way, get beyond that type of conversation. Um, I mean, there's a very obvious re reason why um, the SNP or any, you know, ruling party, I mean, look at the forces who were on the side of Remain, right? The actual interests of the capitalist class, really, like on the whole, that is true. And there's a very good reason why I think the SNP are, you know, keen to stay in the EU. And that's because every single governing party, every single, you know, part of the, the governing class, like, lot, they love hiding behind things like state aid rules. And look at what happened with BIFAB, right? They love hiding behind this stuff. And nobody is actually, like, we don't have the vehicle to be able to articulate a socialist position on what a deal could look like or what the advantages might be of not being in the European Union because you would actually be making a concerted challenge to neoliberalism in that case. And that's that's not the type of political party that we have leading Scotland. Like, and this is what it comes down to. And it's not a sectarian approach to the SNP. It's not just, you know, fling in mud. This is actually an ideological question. And people should ask themselves, like, why would a party, you know, be so enthusiastic about the EU when actually in an independent Scotland? it would remove sovereignty from the people of Scotland and their elected government. That's what I find completely astounding. Like, it, it violates popular sovereignty. Um, like, all those, like, well, this is the thing, is like, what I'm trying to say about the state aid thing is that, um, the, the, like, our own elites are then able to hide behind this, like, facade of the bureaucracy and the legality of the European Union and we can't possibly do that you see even though now we're an independent country we still can't possibly do that because the EU law says this um, yeah. and that's an affront to democracy and sovereignty of course it's but, but the big question is who's democracy and sovereignty so this is this is the, the thing that always annoys me is when people say um, oh no it's an act of sovereignty to give away your sovereignty right I mean it's such a kind of solipsistic argument, right? But forget that for a minute, right? Um, and people think that's terribly clever, right? Think about think of think of this, right? See when Nicola Sturgeon and Andrew Wilson and Angus Gross are, right? And the element of the Scottish capitalist class and civil service and so on, who will be, you know, the, the kind of civic Scotland who will be empowered, right, by Scottish independence. If they choose to give away national sovereignty to the European Union, is their democratic power diminishing? No, it's increasing, right? Because they are linking arms with another element of the capitalist class uh, across the water who they can do deals with. Crucially, they can remove power from Scotland, send it to Brussels, where decisions are made out with, of our, out with our formal democratic structures, right? That's an improvement in the democratic position of a small layer of the Scottish elite. But the flip side of that is the democratic sovereignty of the majority of Scottish people declines in the same proportion, right? So see what we're talking about. See when people say, well, but when we give away our sovereignty, that is an act of sovereignty. Who's we? Who's we? Yeah. We would yeah. lose our rights. 
But Nicola Sturgeon and co would improve their rights in this scenario, right, where this stuff is happening. I frankly don't believe for one second. (laughs) I don't believe that Nicola Sturgeon's going to lead an independence referendum, right? But in that scenario, you know, there is no we at that point. It's the European Union is in the interest of a small elite at the top of society. It's not in our interest, and it's a loss of democracy for us. I mean, what I mean by sovereignty is to maximise the influence of popular democratic forces over state power. So there has to be like a sovereignist approach when it comes to the something like the economy. Like the way our economy is run has to be subject to the democratic scrutiny of the Scottish people. Do you know what I mean? Like not um, subject to the rules and regulations around the EU's stability and growth pact, like which removes all sense of de- democratic economic control. Um, and it is like, a very, it's the very essence of neoliberalism. So that's like what I mean, like when I'm talking about sovereignty, um, is the like popular democratic forces over state power? Yeah, I mean, even as this debate is going on, as the last few days of, of um, you know Brexit, you know, deal negotiations have been going on, the European Commission went and told the Spanish government, right, which is made up of a centre left of the, the PSOE centre left party in and Podemos, went and uh, made a, an ultimatum to them that they had to reduce pensions. They said reform the pension system. That's what they mean. Stop paying your old people so much because it's unsustainable, right? Um, And they said, do that or you're not getting the emergency aid that we set up for the COVID and the the crisis and so on, right? So they're holding a gun to the head of a a centre-left government once again and saying, you need to cut public services. You need to reduce the stock of wealth that is going towards your working class population. Um, you know, there's a desperate need in this country for more information, for people to understand what the European Union is actually there for. People talk a lot about how the right-wing tabloids mispresented the European Union, and they did. But so did the, so did the Guardian. So did the Independent. You know, so did the the you know the kind of liberal the liberal broadsheets and the BBC. The BBC doesn't have any reports about the thousands of measures of this kind that have been rolled out across Europe in the last twenty years. They haven't carried any news reports on this kind of stuff. I remember their coverage of Greece. They they weren't uh, they weren't talking about how how Greece uh, the, the troika sabotaged Greece's economy to bring it to its knees. You know, there's a there's a need to go beyond the really really simplistic ideas that have built up around this question. But in any way, in in any case, in Scotland, we're now entering, I think, a different phase. If a deal is agreed, right? What does that actually look like? Because there's also this idea of like, well, we're gonna we're gonna be outside of the European Union, and it's almost like there's gonna be no European Union at that point. We're just gonna be in Fortress Britain or something, right? We are going to Britain, the British state is going to organize with the EU a series of mutual institutions, organizations, um, meeting places and times on, on a yearly basis where they meet up and discuss mutual relationships. There's going to be a new institutional stuff to the relationship between the British state and the European Union Commission. Yeah. Right? Now, that means there's going to be a new political settlement. 
And guess who's not going to be involved in that new political settlement? The Scottish Independence Movement, yeah. right? Yeah. We, are, we are the wrong people, right? Ursula von der Leyen and Boris Johnson are the same people. They are the same class. They are the same club. We are not in that club, right? We don't get a say. And by the way, that's not, people seem to think that this is like, this is about England, right? There's going to be European Union um, uh, discussions and deals and so on. We're going to have deals with the European Union that draws in every area of the Scottish economy, right? So they're now going to have access to the Scottish economy through whatever new institutional arrangements and deals and so on are arrived at, right? So they're going over our heads. It's like the Scottish independence movement isn't Scotland, isn't the Scottish capitalist class. They're going way over our heads and dealing with Scotland anyway. Like we need to get our heads around that, the, the fundamental institutional questions of our political system. Um, this idea that the European Union is gonna be desperate to disrupt that newly founded deal, those newly founded institutions that it's just agonized over in the designing of them. It's gonna disrupt them to hold out the hand of friendship to, to the Scottish independence movement, who by the way, Ursula von der Leyen and Michelle Barney and all the rest of these scum, right? If they ever actually saw Scottish independence march, they would think it was disgusting. They look at that march and say, that's like these nationalists in Hungary. That's like the yellow vests in France. That's like people who marched against EU measures in Ireland. They look at, they would see a force like the Scottish independence movement, the real movement, not the, um, the PR driven, you know, the spin doctors and the, and the, you know, the people at the top of the SNP and all this kind of stuff. The, the actual independence movement. They would look at that and say, I don't like that. That looks disruptive. That looks like these people in Catalonia who they hate, right? They don't want us. <laughs> they don't like us. They're not on our side. So, you know, leave, leave a light on. Do you remember that? Oh, remember? I remember that. Last Brexmas, leave <laughs> the light on. Um, <laughs> leave, leave the light on. Um, yeah, forget all that stuff. They're not our team and they're, not, they're never going to be. And if a deal is arrived at in the next few days, that will become abruptly clear because whatever FTSE was going on, you know, Macron grinning and saying, oh, you know, I'm Scottish in my heart and all this kind of stuff, right? It's bullshit. It's bullshit. It's just a negotiating position. Um, what a cynic. You know, you should go and watch the video of that sleazy guy grinning away and saying, in my heart, I am Scottish and all this kind of stuff. It's, it's pure manipulation. Um, yeah. and, it's, and it's these people's bread and butter. You know, the people at the top of the global system, it's their bread and butter. What do you think of EU Supergirl? <laughs> what happens to Hannah? Um, <laughs> do you remember, do you remember, um, she did a tour of Europe, but it was like, purely, she went to like, um, <laughs> she went to just a bunch of train stations uh, and from there to various EU like funded theme parks and stuff. It was the most grim idea of Europe I've ever seen. It was the most sterile image of Europe that I've ever seen. Like, I actually, like, obviously, I'm a sort of state-dwelling cosmopolitan, et cetera, right? I obviously love Europe. Like, I obviously, like, love going to big European cities and, ooh, and all that, right? And, and wandering around and looking at the architecture and all that kind of stuff, right? Um, 
the weird thing it brought home to me that the kind of ultra remain people don't care about any of that like they don't actually like no, Europe they, just, like, get they on like the EU and go to Europe and then go to glass and steel buildings yeah you know I mean? they look like giant shopping centres or office blocks but they're all like yeah. all EU like places in my head are glass and steel yeah, that's what it was all. It was all that kind of stuff. It was like they were desperate. She was desperate to go like to the European Parliament and all this stuff. Um, but I don't know. I don't. What happens? What happens to grifters when the grift has died? Well, do you know she wrote like? I mean, this is one of my pet hates. Um, is like like that kind of like super liberal children's literature. Oh, does she write that? She wrote like so she wrote a bunch of like children's books. Uh, called like Trees are Maybe in Brexit Land, uh, thump, thump the Orange Gorilla at the Big World Zoo, Alba White Wolf's Adventures in Europe. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Alba White Wolf sounds like a Scottish neo Nazi. It does, doesn't it? I mean, I can't tell you that I've, uh, I've read any of them, obviously. Um, so it could be about a Scottish neo Nazi going Alba to Europe. Alba White Wolf. Do you know, it's, it sounds like someone on a, a yes demonstration wearing one of those wolf t-shirts. That's what comes to mind. You know, those like black t-shirts with a sort of ghostly um, indigenous wolf thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know how to mime a wolf t-shirt. <laughs> you, don't, you don't see them that much anymore, but there used to be a thing where like people would have those t-shirts and you'd get them out of like the kind of shop that you'd also buy a dream catcher from and yeah, they'd have like a also, wolf on it. Yeah, but also the same shops that sell those um, ashtrays that are yellow, green and red and have like a rasta on them smoking a doobie. Do you know what yeah, I mean? Those kind of ashtrays. Yeah. Ben Ray. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Friend of the pod, Ben Ray, who will never hear this because he never listens to it. So just say what you want he he used to have a t-shirt that had a whale and a dolphin on it in that style and they were sort of flying through space and the words on it said in spirit we are the same <laughs> I, it's the grown man that, wearing this that should be the uh, the boris Ursula t-shirt in spirit oh, we are the same we need to get a graphic on the go Johnson and Ursula von Leyen floating through the Milky Way with, yeah, in spirit, we are the same. Yeah. I'm going to uh, make that. I've got, a, I got a Photoshop quite recently and I'm a bit addicted to it. So I'll, I'm going to get that on the go. <laughs> That's, um, I mean, if only we thought about it well in advance of Christmas, then we could have hopped. We could have had a line of, line of t shirts so. out. Oh, why still not come up with any match? Because all the left-wing grifters now have match. Yeah. I'm sure. I'm sure Owen Jones' new YouTube channel has. You can get a mug with his face on it and stuff like that. David, I'm, don't say anything horrible. No, <laughs> gonna get into some podcast wars here. Um, Pod wars. No, but we should have merch. I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well. We might get around to that in the new year, but do you remember on the last pod we were like, "Oh, we'll we'll do four episodes before Christmas." <laughs> oh yeah. And then we got we, bored for like three weeks. 
<laughs> if we can't even get round to, to fulfilling our quota, uh, then yeah, probably not time to think about the old mugs and pens and so on. I don't know. I do want like your face on a t-shirt saying something like I heart Europe or something. I don't know yet. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, we'll test for demand. Um, so yeah, the the, the Brexmas saga continues. Um, what else were we going to talk about? The SNP. The crisis yeah. in the SNP. Because that's what else has happened since we last recorded the podcast is the SNP conference and the backlash against the SNP leadership. Yeah. Um, so the thing that I've always thought about in the last couple of years in the independence movement, more and more people involved in the sort of grassroots of the movement have become increasingly disenchanted with the leadership of the SNP. While this has been going on, the prestige of the SNP leadership in the wider public has continually increased. And people have always said, um, why, well, people arguing in bad faith, in my view, have always said, why is this happening? You know, it's as though it shows how obviously irrational this is, that the movement itself is becoming more and more disputatious towards the leadership at just the time when the leadership is becoming more and more hegemonic um, in the wider country. Um, but I think it, that question deserves to be asked seriously. Like, I think if we're serious about social movements, we need to say, well, yes, why? And the answer from a lot of people arguing in bad faith is, I don't know, just that people have gone crazy or something. People have gaminitis, right? And they've decided that they are, they're going to go crazy, like anti-vaxxers or something, who we'll get on to later. Um, people have just gone completely stuck crazy. And, you know, it, this shows the ugly underside, the ugly kind of underbelly of, of the independence movement that it has this potential for a kind of dangerous, populist kind of ethos, right? Um, I think that's, a, I think that's a, an explanation that says more about the people who make that argument than it does about anyone in the, in, in the independence movement uh, itself. That kind of pathologization, right? That we've seen a lot of in recent years. I mean, in all of the major movements of the last few years you've had, even in something that was very left-wing, you know, on the ground, like Corbynism, for example, you know, people said, oh, all these subcultural cranks are coming in and they are, you know, spewing vile hate and, and all this sort of stuff. The independence movement was always a populist movement. The fact that a small element of the independence movement tried to reimagine it as a kind of uber-liberal, cosmopolitan, technocratic movement in society does has never changed that right people just started to ignore what the real demands and the real character uh, of the movement is and i'm not using populist and scare quotes here i'm just talking about um the scale and form and content of the movement as it existed uh, in 2014 the sorts of demands it made for representation in a society where democratic representation has become extremely hollowed out the sorts of frustrations uh, that it expressed about the world. And what has happened is that sentiment has grown tired with the wheeling and the dealing and the obfuscations at the top of the SNP uh, and the cynical behaviour uh, and the utterly undemocratic regime inside the SNP. 
at the recent SNP conference where um, critics of the leadership gave the leadership a beating, right? Democracy had been almost entirely closed down. All kinds of motions had just been scraped from the conference. Now, SNP conferences are never democratic, right? They are a notoriously uh, undemocratic event, even by the standards of party conferences and few political parties in the Western world are terribly democratic. But the SNP conference is, is you know, one of the one of the least of, of kind of center type parties uh, across the Western world. Um, and those frustrations, by the way, have always been there. I mean, I think I've been at every SNP conference um, since the referendum, I think, maybe I've missed one. Um, and there was constant anger uh, among delegates regarding the undemocratic quality uh, of the leadership. And you've got to remember that this is a party which 100,000 people have recently joined, right? But there was always at those conferences as well, great optimism, um, a sense of direction, we're heading towards independence and, and so on. Uh, and people, because of the character and the behavior of the SNP leadership have simply stopped believing this. Uh, and I, I'm not terribly surprised that that was always gonna happen because of who these people are, how they act and so on. So whatever wider questions and concerns, and look, politics is a messy business. I'm not saying that um, uh, every argument being made is articulate or even progressive or um, whatever. I am just saying that this breakdown was, was gonna come and it will get worse. Like it, it will get more tumultuous if the SNP leadership continues to delay uh, and you know and, and continues to be dishonest with the movement about the challenges that we face, which by the way, let's just say this lastly, are even more extreme than most of the SNP leadership's critics understand. We do not have a currency policy. Yes. It does not exist, right? There is no route into the European Union, none. It doesn't work, right? Um, the SNP leadership has claimed that it will not even broach the question of independence until all of the questions unleashed by COVID have been resolved. So that's not, that it won't be over once everyone's never. vaccinated. It means never. It means <laughs> right? never. It's, it's really kicking the can down the road. We have entered a major period of economic crisis and instability, right? Which, by the way, Stalinization, uh, the SNP's uh, official policy, would mean that we could not have addressed, we could not have, we wouldn't have had a central bank to buy up government bonds and create the monies that, you know, have been going into things like furlough schemes and, and um, company assistance and so on, right? It, total disaster, utterly discredited, but there it still is, right? We should have made, in the last few years, we should have been saying over and over again, Scotland is a, as a country can make it on its own. Instead, we were saying Scotland is doomed if it ever left the European Union. And now we don't know that we can get in. We should have spent the last few years saying that any country should have economic sovereignty. That means a currency and a central bank. And we should have been bedding in those arguments and they've never been made, putting us in a terrible position. So anyone who thinks that the independence question is going to get resolved in the next couple of years, on what basis? Yeah. Like, we, we yeah. at this point, under this leadership, we don't have an argument. I mean, 
going back to the conference like i i totally agree like i i feel that there's part of this that's there was there was a long time coming right and can i just say like part of what really frustrated me after the conference was the way that this was again da -da -da -da, seen through the lens of the culture war <laughs> is incredibly frustrating because what's actually happened is well it's fascinating politically because a group of like people got organized and factionalized the fuck out of the most undemocratic party um in europe like it must be like a social democratic party right it must be right and they have like i mean any trotskyist which is <laughs> be looking at that wide-eyed like wow so they managed to get organized and actually like win this leadership right which i think is impressive in itself and i think it shows the strength of the feeling because there was a kind of like this was necessary. I think those types of conflicts are necessary sometimes. Like sometimes we have to like bump up against people, even if they're in our own organizations. Um, but the leadership of the SNP has pissed everyone off. Everyone is pissed off. Like I rarely go, I mean, apart from the real like regime journalists, um, no shout outs, <laughs> like no one is like, happy with the direction of travel the leadership has pissed off so many parts of the independence movement and its supporters and um, they have cozied up to like sort of tactics that are genuinely anti-democratic all of that stuff about the NEC and Joanna Cherry and blah 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 like all of that's a mess and I know that people want to see this like through the lens of the GRA, but actually like there's a, another fundamental problem behind the, the politics that are seen as the quote unquote dissidents and the quote unquote leadership, right? And part of that is plan A versus plan B. And that to me, like both of those plans, like don't actually give any route forward. So plan A is obviously the sturgeonism, let's get elected on a majority, like look at the opinion polls, wait till we've got COVID sorted and then we can have a referendum. You know, once we've um, we've tidied everything up and everything's neatly in order, then we can have a referendum. And that's just not realistic. That's not how the real world works. And my politics are one of like, it's politics of rupture. Like you have to disrupt and break things in order to like drive anything forward. The, and obviously on this position, you've got your Nicholas Sturgeon, um, Andrew Wilson, Angus Robertson are on that side of it. The people on the other side of this, the plan B, I mean, plan B is supposed to not exist and no one's really supposed to talk about it because the leadership managed to keep it off the agenda and there was no real... Like people tried to maneuver it into the debate at conference, but the problem, like plan B, I mean, as far as I understand, there's, there's part of plan B, which is about like, you know, um, pre preparing an alternative strategy that uh, includes a legal action. Um, you know, the, the Scottish government doesn't actually need Westminster to call an, another referendum. I'm sorry, but like, as a sovereigntist, like, and I'm someone who's interested in like popular democracy, if we start to turn to the courts 
to give us our right to self-determination, then I think that we're setting up on the wrong foot. Like we have to be looking at extra parliamentary actions, mass actions, civil disobedience, holding a referendum without consent. Like that has to be in the armory. And I just feel that a lot of the options are becoming like options of the elite. So you've either got the really tidy and neat um, let's wait and see what the opinion polls are um, and let's do some parliamentary manoeuvring and see what the Tories will give us and that kind of like real professional stuff. Then you've got the let's go through the courts route. What's to stop the Tories just changing the bloody law? Like they've got a majority. They'll just they'll just change the law. That That's what will happen and it will be a good news story but the bureaucracy of it all will just suck all the energy out of it entirely. What we need is a movement on the streets that's prepared to take action and actual leadership that's going to say we're going to hold the referendum whether Westminster recognizes it as such or not and like that's when I'm quite excited like uh, like that latter part is like where I'm excited about the the potential within the yes movement like that sort of thing it uh, does kind of get me all kind of Ooh, let's go this is the thing that that stuff needs to be in the arsenal but it also needs to be we need to be psychologically prepared for it right like a lot of people in the independence movement right now understandably they've only got one model for what scottish independence might look like which is a rerun of 2012 to 2014 except that we win right um now that for so many reasons including connecting ones connected to brexit that's, that's an unlikely scenario, I'd say, at this point. Certainly, at least if we were to get an agreed referendum with Westminster, right, if we were ever even to get ourselves into that position, we would need a much more powerful street-level movement. We'd need to be talking about civil disobedience. We'd meet, need to make it clear that it would be an enormous embarrassment for the government to refuse a very basic democratic right uh, to self-determination, right? The SNP leadership have none of this stuff in mind none whatsoever. And that's perhaps equal parts naivety, historical naivety. Like, I'll be honest, I, I think that a lot of the leading elements inside the SNP um, are quite historically ignorant. I think that they're not, um, they're not really very conscious on a sort of programmatic level. They don't think about big politics. I think they think about politics in a very day-to-day, -day, very mundane uh, sort of way. I don't think there's a great deal of panache there. Um, I don't think that you've got a Nigel Farage in the SNP leadership, let's put it like that, like someone who's actually prepared to like break the rules and, 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 and be aggressive and assertive and dynamic in the way that they approach uh, their goal of a major constitutional uh, change. Um, but it's also because these people are fundamentally conservative, right? And that runs through the whole politics like a red thread. That's why they don't want to talk to the mass movement. That's why they want to keep arms length. That's why they want they only want a, they want the independence movement to be a series of conversations with people like Ursula von der Leyen. That's what they want the independence movement to be. And it's never going to be that. That you know, there's a reason why uh, it, that that's a, there's a reason why Catalonia doesn't look like that. Um, so yeah, I I, I agree with that. Um, the, the one last thing I would say about the SNP is it became a sort of controversy in, in the culture war, as you say, is, you know what, um, if people were looking closely, they would see that it doesn't break down very easily that way. So but I, I refer back to this because we were some of the first to call it, right? 
um, we called on this podcast that Alan Smith was trying to maneuver his way towards the other side of the uh, the other faction, right? Yeah. By yeah. leaking, by leaking a statement that there was too much equality stuff going on yeah. in the SNP. Totally. We did we call to, that one. And we need to get back to independence, right? And after that leak came out, he then decided to write an article on exactly the same lines in the National, right? He knew what was coming. He knew that they, they were in trouble because of, because of the discontent that they had sown widely throughout the membership. So when he got packed out, basically his opponents didn't listen. They were like, they, they spun his overtures and were like, we're getting ready. We don't trust you, right? And they did. They got rid of him. And then he wrote another article in the, the National. The most where he's... wonderful article. The most wonderful article. Fascinating piece. Loved it. Loved it. Yeah. Entitled, So You've Beaten Me, Now What? Or something like that. Yeah. 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 Congratulations, so, yes. you've beaten me. Yeah. Um, now what are you going to do? Um, and, and their attitude is these people are all incompetent and, and all that kind of stuff, right? So, and it should be said, by the way, because much of that article was factions are bad, I'm against factions. This is another thing he had out before the conference when it became clear to him that he couldn't become a sort of like Mr. Macho independence, I don't give a shit about equalities, right? When that didn't work, he uh, put another article saying external organisations should not be setting up factions inside the SNP. And he's obviously talking about Commonweal, right? And I was like, uh, what do you call Charlotte Street Partners? Like, what do you call that? You you got them to write your policies for yeah. you. You've set out all you've set up all these external like junkets of like Scottish establishment figures for the you know to, to sell off Scotland's national assets. So don't talk about like foreign interference in the SNP. And also the leadership is a faction, right? It has behaved as a faction for uh, years and years. There's a longer backstory here, by the way, which is that for quite a long time the SNP leadership operated a bit like a sort of a revolutionary cell. This is what people say about it, right? Um, but that was when it was an insurgency breaking into Scottish politics as outsiders, right? What the SNP now is at the top of that party, there are three or four individuals, right? Uh, Sturgeon, Peter Murrell, John Swinney. Um, I mean, that's, that, that's, the, that's the hard sort of canal of the, of the organization. And they behave like a faction, right? Uh, and they're factionalized against their own um, membership. But don't assume that everyone on the side of that faction is some sort of like socially liberal or progressive or something like that, no, right? They'll, they'll, they'll turn on a dime, right? Yeah. I, I assume, by the way, in the new year, we will see the new and improved leadership faction of the SNP. And yeah. they're going to be making all kinds of offers to the membership. And it will be very easy, interesting uh, to see what that is. Because this, this stuff is like, their claims to represent an open independence movement and so on. It's phony baloney, yeah. right? You know, we are the people who talk to people who aren't currently convinced. My ass, you talk to no one. The only people you talk to are other rich people. <laughs> you're, not, you're not proselytizing independence across the country, right? Um, and, and look, you know, people say, oh, but the polls are so good for the SNP. And that's all very true, right? If they didn't have the independence issue they'd be as dead as scottish labor because they are scottish labor right they're new labor right but with independence and if you take the national question out of it the entire coalition collapses 
So before anyone before anyone says, you, you get some commentators who think that Nicholas Sturgeon is manna from heaven, and it's just a, just a, just a shame that she's like a gold queen sitting upon a massive throne of shit, right? Which is the independence movement. No, no, no. If that throne's not there, she ain't there. Um, and you're going to see that in the new year. They're going to be saying, you're making promises on independence again. I reckon they're going to move the policy positions to the left. They do that probably in the run-up to an election. But they're, as, a, as a response to the internal fallout, I'd expect to see all kinds of stuff um, along those lines. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I mean it, 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 yeah, it's, it's been interesting. I mean, one of, one of the things that's happened in the last year, because people couldn't go out and march, is the organized. So like you've had uh, Yes Alba being set up. Interesting the same thing's going on in um, in Wales with Yes Cymru. I mean, that's partly a product of the lockdown and of the collapse of Corbynism. Um, the fact that left-wing energies have moved into, yeah. into the independence movement. We had a good interview with a guy, uh, Seb Cook, uh, is up on our YouTube mm-hmm. account, if you want to go and look at that. Um, so, you know, it's... I mean that that it was it was the biggest kind of blow to um, the SNP leadership since 2014, probably on on, on like an organisational uh, uh, level. And interestingly, the one last thing I'd say about it is, is how much it caught people off guard, particularly people whose job it is to be political journalists. So you got people in like um, BBC in the BBC who are like, "What is this?" <laughs> like, you know, they're just re- repeating that same line, but the leadership is so popular in the country. What is this? Yeah. Um, just reinforces my point once again that, like, to understand social movements, you know, you, you need social movement correspondence. They should have people, they should have BBC journalists talking to the people who uprooted uh, leadership loyalists in the party in those elections. And they didn't. The, like, the media doesn't know who any of these people are. I mean, yeah, I, I agree with all of that. Um, although the sort of the petty side of me is still salivating over the Alan Smith article. I mean... Do you want, do you want to hear one of my favourite bits? Have you got it up at the time I was ranting there? <laughs> well, first of all, he um, slams people who wanted to talk about Plan B and the quote-unquote magic bean currency option. <laughs> This is from a man. I, I love that. Sterilization. Oh, I love that, beans man. would be fucking better, mate. Yeah, baked beans baked. Right, would be would be better. <laughs> Just fistfuls of baked beans would be better than a currency that we're fucking buying in that we don't have any control over. Um, I mean, I, that is incredible. I mean, that just shows a level of condescension which is unbelievable because, like. Alan, you don't know anything about economics. You know what I mean? Let's not pretend like magic <laughs> currency. Um, there's also um, new rules, new tactics. I'm out as policy development convener, but I'm not going away and I'm not going to be bullied into silence. I'm starting a faction. I'm in the SNP wing of the SNP. Yeah. Who let this go out? Who in party HQ thought it would be a good idea for that to be published? I asked I asked um, party veterans about that uh, quietly. I said, like, how has this actually gone out, right? How did this go by the leadership office? 
and they okayed this. Uh, and what I was told is that sort of stuff doesn't go on anymore, right? So that which shows a very interesting picture because under the previous leadership of the SNP, anything that a top SNP put out into the media would have been seen someone close to the leader, right? You know, especially if it was something as sensitive as this, right? What's clear is, but we've always known this, right? There's very little communication between the SNP leadership and, for example, the Westminster Group. In fact, there's basically no, you know, I mean, there's there's no communication, there's no strategy. That's why that um, SNP Westminster Group is just kicking around down there, not really doing anything, right? There's very little internal organ internal communication, basically within the party, is what I'm told. Um, so no, no one saw that. He and, wrote that and put it I out. I mean, it it, re it does read like no one has had an eye over this to say maybe this ain't the best approach because he does actually sound like Alan Partridge. Mm. Like it is an Alan Partridge esque article, um, and I don't. Who's trying to bully him into silence? I don't understand. Like, who who's trying to bully Alan Smith into silence apart from you? <laughs> <laughs> the weird the weird thing is, right? He remains one of my favourite characters in there. I know, right? I know. Um, your uh, but your other half does love him. Well, it's that, that eyebrow. I mean, you can't, the you can't beat the eyebrow. He, is, he um, is honestly like the smoothest politician. Scotland he uh, Bond. There's, there's a great video of him fucking around at a, um, like an animal park or something in his constituency. Oh, that's also Alan Partridge. an elephant or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. go to the owl sanctuary. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> also, right, see one of the articles he had slagging off Common Wheel or whatever it was before the conference. At one point, he actually wrote blah 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 raises an eyebrow and i'm like you're having a laugh there oh, come on <laughs> slipped it in there it's like um, i always expect his articles to end with um, a little eyebrow needless to say i had the last laugh yeah like yeah. that level of alan partridge line um alan smith we salute you and your eyebrow um what else were we going to talk about today Oh yeah. Uh, yeah, anti-vaxxers. Vaxxers. Hug an anti-vaxxer. Hug an anti-vaxxer over Christmas. Do they even know it's Christmas? Like that song. Do they know it's Christmas? Do the anti-vaxxers know it's Christmas? Yeah. I, 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 by the way, I was in, um, I was in Tesco uh, today, and that song came on, right? And I was just so infuriated by it. Are, um, they, are they still allowed to play that one? Yeah, uh, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm genuinely surprised there hasn't been a lobby to ban it. Yeah, um, but well, well, maybe, maybe people, maybe it's so popular. Um, so for all of my life, I've been getting asked a question, roughly once a year, but several times, you know, in a month. Do they know it's Christmas in Africa? I'm pretty sure the answer to that question is yes. I mean, I don't know. There are different religions in Africa, but um, I, I think most Africans know. But I just, I just, I, I was suddenly infuriated by being asked that question over and over again. Um, that is a hilarious song. I mean, I can't believe it's still going out. Uh, my favorite lines in, include, where nothing ever grows. No rain or rivers flow. <laughs> no rain or rivers. There's, there's no rain in Africa and no rivers. There isn't famously huge rivers in Africa like the Nile. No, no, no. there are no no, 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 no. 
that's just you're imagining that <laughs> yeah there are no rivers in africa and that's why there's no food none at all um also um the the greatest gift they'll get this year is life it's fucking uh, it's, it's, it's awful it's, it's sick so it is it is totally sick and it's like it reminds me of that other thing that people say which is uh like first world problems I'm like, what are you trying to tell me? Someone in Africa doesn't sometimes get pissed off they can't get fucking hummus at the supermarket. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? But also, I, I, there won't be snow in Africa this winter. Uh, I like There's that one. No snow, no rivers. Oh, shit. Right. shit. Get out of it. Yeah. Why would you want to live in, in, on, on a continent where there's no snow? It's fucking no terrible. Christmas. No <laughs> Christmas. Um, and I love that bit. Everyone loves that bit where. Um, uh, uh, what's his name? Bono. Where uh, <laughs> Bono goes, you know, he, he really, it's really emotional. He's like, thank God it's them. It's like, what? Uh, <laughs> yeah, thank God it's them that's dying. So, so please give generously. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's a real masterpiece. Every line in that is offensive. Every single line. Um, yeah, that, that came from a different time. It, it was a different time. It was simpler times. Yeah. I think it when, was Christmas number one, just maybe the year I was born. I don't know. I was born in 85. Maybe it was like around about that time. So it's, it must have been playing every Christmas that I've been alive. I've been listening to that. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. It's like, it's the same way that millennials only understand the world in terms of crisis. So our mm. whole like political outlook and the way that we see the world is determined by all the various crises. So um, economics, the dot-com bubble, 2008, like now where we are, do you know what I mean? We're just crisis, crisis, crisis. Um, but to add to that crisis and just to make us uh, weep a little more into our olives, sourdough and hummus is uh, that song every single yeah. year for our whole lives. I just also like Africa has changed enormously uh, since that song was first um, put out. Like there are now parts of Africa, which like, I mean, the urbanization of Africa has exploded, right? Um, I'm not saying that, you know, the next version has to talk about, you know, China's investment of capital into, you know, <laughs> African oh, industrial oh, investment. Just stick some like sleigh bells on top of that, and that's how that's yeah. how it works. <laughs> yeah, just a lecture about you know urban development in Africa, but it, but um, but we're still playing this song ritualistic. I mean, it's supposed to be a charity single, but we're still playing it every single year to remind ourselves of these bizarre ideas about what's going on in Africa. Um, but the version that I was listening to was the really shit one that they redid like 10 years ago. So it's got all these artists in it who are like 10 or 12 years ago that I completely forgotten existed. And I'm listening to it thinking, who was that again? And one of them was like, I think Joss Stone is in it, who I'd completely forgotten about. <laughs> Don't, Kat has a look on her face that suggests she has no idea who Joss Stone is. Loser. She's like the biggest thing ever. Uh, also the guy from... Um, uh, um, that band, that um, guitar, that that kind of like cock rock band who were a bit jokey. Um, um, you know, I believe in a thing called love. 
the darkness the darkness uh he's in it uh also there is a rapper can't oh. remember who could be tiny temper <laughs> tiny tiny temper uh, uh this obviously british music had diversified <laughs> from 1985 or whenever it came out um so yeah it was it was a really really it was kind of shit new version uh new <laughs> new because i say new because it was on when i was like a teenager um so anyway i don't know how i got onto that segue from the i know uh, i know it's been a um the vaccines um but i mean so, we've, yeah we've been doing an hour so maybe we should <laughs> but my, the only thing i want to say about this is right do you remember when lockdown happened and rather than complain that the government had completely, you know, cocked up the pandemic, mm-hmm. called lockdown too late, probably, and um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. People just started saying, look at this freak who's out jogging for the second time today and has not accepted lockdown. Yeah. And then when we started to introduce masks, also done very haphazardly, by the way, not issued by the state. People had to go out and source these things and buy them off eBay and all that kind of stuff, right? Once masks came in, there were all kinds of photographs on social media of people not wearing a mask in a shop, right? Now, once again, uh, once the vaccines start getting rolled out, we're not going to say, well, it's a scandal that vaccines aren't coming out fast enough. It's a scandal that they're not going to this or that group of frontline workers, nurses or teachers or whatever, right? No, no, no. We're going to say, look at this freak who has refused to take a vaccine because they believe in a conspiracy theory about it or whatever. Um, And by the way, the numbers of people who didn't abide by lockdown were pretty small for for that whole period. The numbers of people who refused to wear a mask uh, under any circumstances, very small in Britain. I think it was a bit more of a phenomenon in the United States. Um, The number of people who refused to take that vaccine, I reckon, will be even smaller. I yeah, think it will, be, it will be. It will be very, very small, but it won't stop a I huge mean, amount. Of, of course, I understand why people are a bit funny about it. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I don't think that everyone who is like nervous about the vaccine is like some kind of crazed anti-vaxxer, QAnon, Pizzagate type person. Like, I think some people are like, okay, so a vaccine takes ten years usually to develop five years would be dead fast this has been done very quickly so i'm quite nervous about what that might mean right there can there can be an aspect of like a kind of genuine nervousness about it but i mean i I agree i think it's going to be tiny i think people are really obsessed with like you know this kind of like name and shame culture like it was driving me nuts like during the first lockdown when like someone would break lockdown and it would be like hang them like fucking off of their heads like do you know I mean hung drawn and quartered and dangled over fucking London Bridge for all to see and mock or like do you know what I mean I was just like this is not healthy like we're not like I mean all the stuff about like the cronyism that's gone on the amount of money that's gone to private companies connected to the, the Tory party all of that that should be the focus of people's ire not like some poor dad that's cutting about a supermarket that doesn't know how to wear a mask like I, I always like the one of like 
people being really angry at old people who only put the masks over their mouths. That's what, I'm, not... that's what I'm thinking of. Like, I think that's just, I just feel sorry for them. That's just really, yeah, it's really sad. Right? They just don't get that's it. Sad. I mean, yeah, imagine be. although I don't want to think about how it must be to be an old person just now. It must be absolutely brutal. Nah, it must be pretty miserable. Um, but the other thing, so the, in, in connection to this, right, is just that this is the other thing. See, I, I've noticed in my peripheral vision in the last few days, there's been some torrid argument about what people can and cannot do on Christmas Day. Um, and I just, my only thing I want to say about this is like, um, I don't have a clue what the rules are anymore, so I can't follow the argument. And I reckon that's true of 99% of people. Mm, yeah, I think the the... Rules around Christmas are changing, but it's okay because um, Santa can't catch coronavirus. This is very true. So Santa can still come, and I'm really excited about that. Great stuff. Uh, and, I, really, like, uh, I really need to pee. Yeah. We need, <laughs> we need to wrap this up. It's a mad of urgency because I'm on a mad diet, you see. And part of the mad diet is drinking tons and tons and tons of water. Right. So what do we say to wrap this up? We'll just say goodbye. Yeah. Okay. Uh...